Hi, thanks for joining us. We are in our study on the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers. We're going to take our Bibles and start, though, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 9, as we uh, begin our study today. When we look at Numbers chapter 8, and as Leviticus 9 gives us a little bit of the context, Numbers 8 reminded me of a, a thing that happened in my childhood. Chicago has one of the largest nighttime Christmas parades in the nation. It's a wonderful, wonderful event that my family would go down to every once in a while or we'd watch it on TV. It was called the Lighting of the Magnificent Mile. And it was a stretch in Chicago on Michigan Avenue where a lot of high-end stores are, but there were a lot of lights. And what would happen is the parades would happen, the fireworks would happen, and they would light up the whole street. And it was just a beautiful experience. But what was really exciting for me as a child and for many other people was not so much what happened with the lighting. It was what was pictured, what it represented. Now, obviously, as you can see, this is definitely pre-COVID era because there are thousands and thousands of people crammed into the streets right next to each other, really didn't care what happened or what they passed on. They just were excited about what was being represented. And what was being represented by the lighting of the Magnificent Mile was gifts were coming. It was celebrating the beginning of the holiday season. Christmas was coming. And that's what would get me excited because I was like, hey, guess what? Gifts are coming. When we look at Numbers 8, we're going to start off the chapter by seeing that there is a light that is going to to shine. And it's going to highlight some really amazing gifts of God. And as we, we look at that, we want to remember that Numbers 8 wraps or, or finishes or continues, I should say, the communication between God and Moses. Remember at the end of chapter 7, God is now communing with Moses in the Holy of Holies and communicating from the mercy seat. And he's going to tell Moses a little bit more about the lamps and the Levites to pass this information on, especially to Aaron. And so we pick up in Numbers chapter 8, but you're in Leviticus 9. And I want that to help us set the context. Look at, look at what happens here in Leviticus 9. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And then they came out and they blessed all the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the piece of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. You look at those little highlighted sections. Remember at the end of Numbers chapter 6, what happens? Aaron comes out and he blesses the people. And then what else do we know? We haven't covered it yet. We're going to see it come up. But we know on that day when the tabernacle was completed, the glory of God came down upon the tabernacle and all the people saw it. And what else did they see? They saw that God lit the fire on the altar. And that caused the people to respond. And all of chapter 7 was the people's response to that dedication moment of the altar and the tabernacle, but especially of the altar. And so the people, number seven, responded, and we see the gifts of the people as they are being presented and provided. They gave what the tabernacle needed in order to be transported, in order to do the continuing of sacrifices. They gave those utensils, they gave the carts and the wagons. And Numbers chapter 8 then is going to continue, not with the gifts that the people give to God, but we're going to see some gifts that God is going to be giving to the people and especially to the tabernacle for the service. The gifts that God, are, that God is going to provide for his program. His institution at this time in history was the tabernacle. And God provided wonderful and special gifts for the tabernacle to function in a holy and appropriate way so that his name would be ultimately glorified. He's done that through history. He continues to do that. He grants to his program, the church, his institution. He grants gifts today to the local church in order for his name to but we'll get into that in the, in the next studies as we, as we continue. I want you to, as we, as we look at this passage, and we look in Numbers chapter 8, as you go to Numbers chapter 8, I want you to, for a moment, I want you to think spatially. And what I mean by that is, is think, think about the space that is happening. Out in the courtyard, 
The altar has been lit amazingly and miraculously by God. In the Holy of Holies, God is speaking with Moses directly. And he's going to talk to him about the lampstand. If you look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 8, you may very quickly look and go, this really doesn't seem to fit. But when you start thinking about that he's talking about the tabernacle, the locations, and now he's going to give a little bit more direction about what he is giving, it makes a lot of sense to have this little transition section of chapter verses 1 to 4 in there. So God directs Moses to instruct Aaron about the lampstand. Notice this is not God telling Moses, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you, verse 2, speak unto Aaron and say to him. So God is giving Moses direct communication that he's supposed to pass on to Aaron. Now look at what happens with the lampstand. Let's look in verse two. It says, speak unto Aaron and say unto him, when you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall, uh, shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof over against the candlestick as the Lord commanded Moses. There's this phrase that we come across two times in verse 2 and 3 where it talks about give light over against in the King James. If you're reading a different version, you're not going to read that. And it, it's, it's a good translation, but it doesn't help us to understand what is being said. What is actually being said here is I want you to point the lamps forward, to, to turn them in such a way that they are shining light in front of the candlestick. Now think spatially. The lampstand, according to Exodus, is on the south side of the tabernacle. Directly across on the north side of the tabernacle is going to be the table of presents or the table of showbread. And right in front over to the left is going to be the altar of incense or the golden altar. And so the lamp was to be lit in order to shine forward on the table of presents and to light the way toward the altar of incense and to, to shine upon the altar of incense. When we think about that, remember what these two items represented. The table of showbread or the table of presence, it demonstrated or reminded people that God physically or was going to provide for their physical provisions. They would give of what God had given to them. And then these, these pieces of bread were set upon the table and later going to be provided again for the priests to be able to eat. But it was a continual reminder that God graciously gives what we physically need. And so the, the lamp is to shine forward to remind the people of God's gracious gifts of provision, physical provision. Even through all of the wilderness wanderings and everything that's happened up to this point, we see God providing. They may not like what God provided, but God provided what they needed physically. It also lit the way to the altar of incense. It reminded people, the altar, the golden altar, reminded the people of God's spiritual provision of forgiveness of sins. That their sins were atoned for. That their sins were forgiven and cleansed. It's really neat, and I don't want to jump too far into too much symbolism, but it just amazes me when you think that the light or the lamp points the way or lights the way to the forgiveness of sins. And we think about Jesus Christ. You can't get away from it. Where he says, I am the light of the world. That I am the way, the only way to heaven, the only way to experience forgiveness of sins is through the light of Jesus Christ, through him. And so you see that picture. You see those things pointing forward to him. So you look at the lampstand in verses one through four, and they're not, remember this, they're not candles, they're lamps. Don't think candlesticks where the lights are just flickering up. But the, the lamp is something that can be turned or potentially some have suggested that there's a little curved uh, like bowl or dish to reflect the light in a certain direction, which may be the case. We, we see that if you've watched any Egyptian movies where they have like with mummies or whatever they're they're there and they're catching the light of the the sun and they reflect it in certain ways to light up areas that that was pretty common in that time period but Aaron is told direct the light forward and what does it highlight it highlights God's gifts of his physical and spiritual care what a great gift to know that God is going to provide our needs 
What a great gift to know that God provides our spiritual necessities and care, that he does offer forgiveness of sins. And we're going to see that play out even more in this chapter as, as we go forward. Now, notice in verse number three. In verse number three, we have a little phrase that says, and Aaron did so. You're going you're gonna to see this, and we'll pick up on that next week when we, when we finish this chapter. We're not going to finish it all this week. There's no way. It is a loaded, it is just theologically packed, wonderful passage of Scripture. Aaron did so. What did he do? He went and he followed the words of Moses. So what happens here? Look what happens. Moses is going to faithfully convey God's word to Aaron. Or even the smith in verse number four, if it's Aaron or if it's somebody else, a guildsmith, uh, who is going to make the lampstand. All this is conveyed to Aaron. And they do it. So Moses is going to faithfully convey what God has said. And Aaron or whoever the guild, the, the, the smith may be, they're going to obey God's word fully. Think about that. What an awesome picture of what Christ has called us to be doing, to faithfully proclaim God's word and for us to be faithfully fulfilling and obeying God's word. Now, this was not always the case for Aaron. You remember, just months previous, Aaron is going to lead in not having any other gods before me and not having any graven images, but he's going to create a golden calf. He's going to fall. He's going to be sinning. And yet we see in this passage months later that we have somebody who was fallen. They have become faithful. How do they get to that point? It's through the forgiveness of sins. And so you have this, this picture, this reminder, not only in the lampstand and the altar and the table, but you have this, this visual object lesson of Aaron standing up and he is going to be a picture that the fallen can become faithful. You may be saying, I'm very much like Aaron. I have fallen. I have struggled during this, this time period with choices and with decisions and with addictions or what the faith, the fallen can become faithful. And so you have Aaron following through and he did, he obeyed and we see that he obeyed. But I really like even the picture of Moses here too. You have a picture of a sinner in Aaron who has become faithful. You have a picture of Moses. He, I, I believe he's a really good picture of a faithful preacher. And I put it in parentheses because he's not a preacher. He's, you know, a prophet and he's a priestly, but he, he, look at what he does. He is going to proclaim. He faithfully proclaims what God has declared. That's, that's my job as a preacher. That's any of our jobs as pastors, that we are to take the word of God and faithfully proclaim what it is done, what it is. He is a perfect picture of what a preacher is called to do. A preacher is to convey God's word without amendment to his people. That's what Moses does. He doesn't make adjustments. He doesn't look and say, this is what I want to say from this passage. But he looks and says, what does the passage say? He does not do what God has called someone else to do. In this passage, Moses is not the one to go light the lamps and to turn the lamps. Aaron is. That's what Aaron has been called to do, to do those priestly duties. Moses does not usurp that. In fact, when you see in times in Scripture when someone usurps what others are called to do, you see trouble. Remember Saul? What does he do? He goes to make a sacrifice. That was not his job. That's not what he was called to do. And there's problems and there's issues with that. And so we cannot be doing what others are called to do. And what else? He does not change what God has said. He doesn't look and go, well, you know, I think it would be a better design if the lampstand looked like this and was like this. He doesn't make adjustments. He faithfully proclaims. And we constantly see, and you see that through the book. It almost becomes repetitive, but it's a really good reminder Remember what it says? You, you look at the beginning, verse 1, and the Lord spake to Moses, and then Moses is going to speak to Aaron, or Moses is going to speak to the people. We see him constantly proclaiming what God has said and not changing it, but telling the people directly what God has said. He is not to change it, but he is to deliver the word of God to his people so that his people can do what God has told them to do. It is really a beautiful picture of a pastor of a preacher 
that we're not to change the word of God. If we do, we are wrong. We're to faithfully proclaim the word of God, apply it faithfully, give it to you so that as you hear the word of God, you see what the word of God is saying, and you are compelled, just like all of us, to live the word of God and to do what we are supposed to do. I'm very thankful, as I know many of you are, that we have a pastor who faithfully exegetes and exposits the word of God. He gives it to us like the Bible says, and he shares it with us and he applies it to us so that we can go out and live. That's what we're, it's a great reminder. It, it reminds me of a story. Uh, Harry Blimer is, uh, he was a uh, student of C.S. Lewis and he talked about a situation where a child in their, in their community had tragically died. And when he died, Blimer said that we went to this funeral excited to hear the hope of what Jesus Christ had, praying that as the gospel went forward, that the people would would hear and respond. But what ended up happening is when they got there, he said that the pastor decided to take this opportunity because the child had had contracted some bacterial uh, issues through the water supply. The pastor decided to take this and run with it and use it as a platform to rail against the city water authority rather than present the gospel. And he says this, he said, we went there looking for comfort from God's word and we got a diatribe against the cities of, against the city authorities, which comforted no one's soul with the eternal saving truth of the gospel. The pulpit, the preaching of God's word is to be a faithful communication of God's word to God's people. It's not to be a platform for political agenda. It's not to be a platform for social just, uh, injustice or social ills. It is to be a place where we faithfully proclaim and when God's word addresses those social concerns, we address them according to God's word. So we, we, I, for me, this was just a really good reminder personally. Art, make sure that you are trying to faithfully proclaim God's word. And for any of us, as we proclaim God's word, let's not make God's word say what we want it to say, but let God's word say what it says and apply it to our lives. Now, the passage goes on. As Mo, Aaron does what he's supposed to do, the, the lampstand takes place. But we get to verse 5 then, and we go from the lamps to the Levites. And this is the biggest section of the, of the passage of Scripture. So the Lord is going to speak unto Moses again. It's a, just his way of changing the topic a little bit and moving forward in the book. He says, take the Levites, verse number 6, from among the children of Israel and do what? He says, cleanse them. So God is now going to have Moses and Aaron prepare the Levites for service. Now, we already know in chapters 3 and 4 what they're going to do, what that service is to be. But now chapter 8 is looking and saying, we're going to prep them. We're going to have them ready. It's not just a, hey, just come in and do what you want to do. We need to prepare them for holy service to God. To be used for a holy purpose, they needed to be cleansed. Verse number 6 says that. It says, take them and cleanse them. So the Levites were taken. Why did they need to be cleansed? Because they were sinners who were being called into holy service. They were sinners who were going to be serving God and they were in need of cleansing. So God is you're coming into this holy institution. You're going to be helping with these holy ordinances of sacrifice. And you're going to help with the holy uh, perspective of keeping the sinners away and making uh, wise judgments and, and guarding the tabernacle. You need to be holy. You need to be cleansed. You need to be consecrated dedicated to me, just like the other instruments were dedicated. And so it reminds us of the importance of being right with God when we seek to serve him. As a church, we come to teach, we come to preach, we come to do nursery, we come to usher, we are coming to do security, we're coming to do the sound booth and do the audio and video. As we come to teach junior church, Whatever dynamic, if it's writing a letter to somebody, whatever you're doing as service unto the Lord, we must remember that we should be right and pure and holy with God. So it may mean that at times we need to take the moments to repent, to make sure that we have asked forgiveness of sins so that as we go forward into serving, seeking to be as holy as possible with God. 
asking for forgiveness. Because when we are a repentant people, when we are a holy people, God blesses, God works, God uses us. He does not expect us to come in and to be sinning and living in sin and doing whatever we want and then trying to portray or to do holy service unto him. He looks and he shows a beautiful picture with the Levites that they are to be holy and that meant being cleansed. That meant having sins forgiven. And so how were they to be cleansed? Verses 7 and 8 give us, that, give us the ritual that takes place for the tribe of Levi. They were to be sprinkled with the purifying water, whether that was water from the laver outside of the tabernacle. Some say it's the water that would be mixed with the holy ground or water that was mixed with ashes from the altar. There's, there's a lot of speculation as to what it was. We know that it was not the anointing oils that were used specifically for the priests, but there was some sort of purifying water or just maybe pure water that was used that was sprinkled upon them symbolically saying, you are being cleansed from your sins. They were to shave their entire body. Look at what it says. It says, and this you shall do unto them to cleanse them. Verse 10, sprinkle water of purifying upon them. And then the next two things were not things that Aaron was supposed to do to the, to the people and Moses, to the Levites, but the Levites were to do to themselves. They were to shave all of their flesh and let them wash their clothes in order to make themselves clean. So they had to shave their body and they had to wash their clothes in their body. Now, we're not just talking, okay, we shaved the head. It's talking all the hair, the eyebrows, the face, the armpits, the legs, everything was to be shaved, all of it. And then they were to take their clothes and wash them, all of it setting themselves. These, these people are going to be noticed. You're going you're gonna to know, oh, there's a Levite. They were, they were set apart. What's interesting is Leviticus 14, for a leper re-entering the camp. Remember, a leper often picturing that, that, that sin. And when a leper, someone with a skin disease, was cleansed and able to enter in, look what Leviticus says. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. And he shall shave off all of his hair. And then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And he shall be clean. Again, it shows that symbolic picture. It is, a, it is a consecration moment. It is a dedication. It is a public declaration. Everybody knew. Everybody knew who they were. They definitely stood out. They were noted. They were devoted to God. They were his. And so there was this peculiarness. There was a distinctness about the way they looked and the way they lived in their society. Even for us, we are a peculiar people. This world is not our home. And so we do have a difference. We should act differently. We should be set apart. We should be holy unto the Lord in our lives. And so the, the, the picture of this, this symbolic ritual cleaning shows that they were going to be physically clean, but it doesn't just stop with the physical cleanliness. God moves forward. Verse number eight highlights the spiritual cleansing. Remember, you're going to see this throughout spiritual and physical, spiritual and physical. God is providing for both dynamics. But look in verse eight. He says, and let, then let uh, them take a young bullock with his meat offering, even fine flour mingled with oil, and another young bullock shall thou take for a sin offering. So he highlights that there's going to be these offerings given God's holiness and sacredness of the items in the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself demanded that these men who were going to serve be holy and acceptable to God. And in order to be holy and acceptable in service to God, they had to be cleansed of their sins. They had to be forgiven. They had to be holy and righteous. So it was not sufficient enough for them to simply look clean. They had to be clean. What a challenge for us today as believers. It's not just simply looking apart or acting or just showing up at a, a church building and saying, look, I am a Christian. It's actually being what God expects of us. And we see that here where God says it's not just the symbolic ritual cleanliness. It's not just do I, wear a, do I wear a suit jacket? Do I wear a tie? Do I not wear a tie? How do I look? But rather, am I truly clean and right before God? Am I portraying my life, my actions, my words, everything I do as an instrument of God and his holiness as I step forward into life? 
God commands the offering of the sacrifices for their spiritual cleansing. He says, I expect this. You're going to offer these sacrifices. There's going to be burnt offerings, a meal or a meat or a grain offering. They're all, the, they're all one and the same, depending on your version, depending on what you're reading. You see, which is actually, I always think a pretty ironic one. The meat offering is actually a grain offering. So it's not actually meat. It's a bloodless offering, but it's called a meat offering. And so it's, it gets confusing sometimes, but the meat offering, just the food was offered as a meat. It was a grain is what it is. And the sin offering. But these offerings reminded not only the Levites, but also all of Israel of the importance of having your sins covered and cleansed. Here was the holy nation or tribe that God has said, they are mine. I have chosen them out because of the way they lived for me. The way that they stood for righteousness. The, the Levites are mine. God has told the children of Israel. And yet they stand up and they picture they still need their sins forgiven. They still need to be cleansed. It was not just enough. And even for Israel as a whole, as a nation, it's not just simply enough to be Jewish. You still need your your sins forgiven. You still need your sins cleansed and covered. Now, I started to mention about the meal, the, the grain offering. It's, it is interesting that it's here because it was a bloodless sacrifice. So why, why is it here? Why, why do we have it? And you can go back to Leviticus 2 toward the end of the chapter and read more about uh, the meal or the grain offering. The meal offering conveyed the idea of dedication to God. It was often and typically given right after the burnt offering, the one that symbolized, that pictured the atonement of sins, that our sins were covered. And out of that excitement and out of that dedication, that uh, amazement of having their sins covered and atoned and paid for, the idea was they were going to dedicate portions back to God. The, The expectation of somebody bringing a burnt offering was that those who have been reconciled to God and have access into his presence will regularly acknowledge that they owe everything to God. How's that go in our life? It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. No, it's God's. And as we look at the fact that God, through his atonement, through his covering of our sins, since he has reconciled us to God, since he has given access to us to God, we should be regularly acknowledging, giving back to him, and acknowledging the fact that we owe it all to God. My life is not my own. It is God's. My children are not mine. They are God's. My home is not mine. It is God's. He has graciously given so much to me. This passage just keeps highlighting God is given. God is given. God is giving. And it's just, it's amazing. So the day of consecration, when it's going to come, he, God tells Moses, tells Aaron, this is, what I, this is what I expect. In verse number nine, he's like, all right, they're going to be shaved. They're going to be clean. They're going to be sprinkled with water. They're going to bring these sacrifices. And he says, verse number nine, he says, you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of the congregation, and you shall have the whole assembly of the children of Israel together. So now it's going to be a public display of consecration. It's not simply, okay, the Levites decided to go into the secrecy of a little little tent and say, okay, I'm going to give my life to God. There was a public commitment. They were saying, I am going to live for God. I am going to set out to live for him. And so this public display of consecration takes place. So it's consecration day. And what's going to happen? What is to take place? The Levites are to be presented before the tabernacle and before the Lord, both times in verse number nine. Uh, it says, they shall bring the Levites before the Lord. The idea of bring is to be presented. The idea of presented like an offering. They are to be presented before the tabernacle. And then uh, down in verse number 10, and you shall bring the Levites before, present the Levites before the Lord. Again, just like in chapter seven, the offerings were given to the tabernacle and to the Lord, ultimately to the Lord and then to the tabernacle. And that same thing that is happening here. There is a symbolic picture that this group of Levites, these men who are going to be in holy service to God, 
were to be presented as an offering to both the tabernacle and to the Lord in these passages. But they were not the only ones there. There was the assembly of the children of Israel. They were to come together and be there. Now, it's important to note at this point that a number of times when it talks about the, the Moses is going to speak to the children of Israel, more than likely, and most, most commentators and scholars hold to this idea, that it was a representative group coming before the tabernacle. And so as just the, the same picture as Moses received from the Lord and he faithfully conveyed to others, to the children of Israel, these representatives would go and then communicate to their tribes, to their people. And, and just to give you a picture of saying, how do, we, how do we really know that that's a potential or that it's probably representative? Think about this for a second. If it's, is it representative, the whole assembly before the tabernacle? Is it everyone or is it representative? If it's everyone, you're talking 2 million people on the conservative side. So now you have 2 million people, and what are they going to do? The children of Israel, verse 10, it says, and the children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. So now you have 2 million people that are going to go and lay their hands upon the Levites. If you take 2 million people, if they just did it one second at a time, you're talking 23 days. This did not take place over 23 days because there's a whole bunch of other stuff, including Passover, including getting ready to leave on a journey that take place. So it wasn't, it wasn't 2 million people all coming, but there was a representative. And this happens in the, in the passages, doesn't it? Representation has taken place throughout this book. Moses represents the people. The princes, they represent the tribes. This is a continual theme that we see. We see it continue through the Old Testament. The king represents the nation. And as the, the king goes, so goes the nation. When we looked at Chronicles a number of months back, we saw that. And so representation does take place, but representation only works provided there is faithful communication and fully willful obedience. Going back to that same thing with Moses and Aaron, what a perfect picture to give to the rest of the nation. We are going to faithfully communicate God's word and we are going to seek to live out God's word fully. And so we, we see that happen, but all of that, don't, don't miss the forests for the trees. Don't get so minutiae, like, oh, like how long, how much time, how many people was this right? Don't, don't miss the bigger picture here. There's something far greater, far bigger happening than just the minutia of numbers. In verse number 10, I mentioned Israel comes and they're going to lay their hands upon the Levites. It is a symbol. It is a picture, especially Old Testament sacrificial system of identifying with your sacrifice. When you would bring a sacrifice to be offered, you would lean upon, you would press into that sacrifice. And it was a form of what we, the theological term, imputation, pressing in or transferring symbolically. My, my sins didn't literally go into a goat, but it was a symbolic representation that says, I can't atone for my sins. I need the blood of a sacrifice to atone and to cover. So they would impute or they would press down, lay their hands upon their offering. That's what happens here in Numbers chapter 8, verse 10. The children of Israel shall put their hands upon the Levites. They're symbolically identifying with the Levites. Remember, they're going to identify for the purpose of substitution. They are the, the Levites are going to be the offering that is going to come in place of the firstborn. Remember what it says. Go jump down to uh, verse number 16. It says, For they are wholly given unto me, talking about the Levites, from among the children of Israel, instead of such as opens every womb, the King James says, or the idea is the firstborn. We've, we've looked at this study already. The, the Levites are taking the place of they're substituting as a sacrificial substitute for the firstborn of all of Israel. And so the Levites become God. And God says in this passage, the Levites are mine. They're going to take the place of the firstborn. So Israel identifies the Levites as the substitution for their firstborn. Now, as they lay the hands on the hands, Aaron is going to offer the Levites unto the Lord as an offering to the children of Israel. Look in verse 11. It says, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord 
for an offering of the children of Israel on behalf of this is this is Israel's offering their sacrifice is the levites they are giving their their offering the levites to the lord and so there's this beautiful picture that as they lay their hands upon him they are transferring and identifying with the levites and saying the levites are taking our place and the levites become that offering to god what a beautiful picture that's taking place now why were they given to god the verse goes on to say that they may execute or they may do the service or the work of the Lord. Think about this. All of this takes place so that, that you know, this guy over here can carry a beam of the tabernacle. So that this guy can carry a bucket of bolts. So that this guy can help carry the, the entrails of a sacrifice away. It's, it's, a, it's amazing how how important holiness and consecration is to God. But they're there to work, to do the work of the the ministry of the tabernacle. As we noted previous um, messages, way back about probably five five messages ago, the Levites are really a beautiful picture of substitution. And as we, we think about it, just as our sins were pressed onto Christ as a sacrifice, it's a picture that we see here with the Levites. As Israel transferred, identified with the Levites, they became the sacrifice. They took the place of. And I just alluded to it in that other message because I knew we wanted to take a little bit of time here and think about this. The picture of substitution. When we look at Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, sin had to be paid for. We know in Romans 6.23, the wages, the payment for our sin is death. That there is a penalty for death. And First Peter even tells us that we are bought with a price. It's not, not of our own, but we look, it's with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus Christ, just like the Levites were this picture of substitution, taking the place of, it points forward to what Christ has done for us. What is called the substitutionary or the vicarious death, the atonement of Christ. Jesus Christ took our place. What a beautiful gift. What a beautiful thing that Christ did. Now, why did this all have to take place? When Christ died, he suffered as a substitute in the place or on behalf of fallen humanity, just like a sacrifice was going to do when the imputation, when the transference took place. That that animal was going to take the place on behalf of the fallen sinner. Jesus Christ does that. He becomes the substitute. Christ's death made it possible for men and women to be declared righteous based on their faith in him. He gave his life, Matthew says, as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made himself to be sin for us. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ was not, he was a spotless lamb who took our place. He was our substitute so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that we could experience the forgiveness of sins through the substitutionary death of our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Why did Christ's death, why was it necessary? It was necessary for a number of reasons. Sin alienated from us from God. We are told in Ephesians that we are aliens. We are estranged from God. We are, other passages tell us, we are in enmity with God. We are an enemy of God because of our sinfulness. And because of our sinfulness, we needed to be at peace with God. Colossians chapter 1, it reminds us, and Pastor dealt with this a number of weeks ago in his, his messages in Colossians, that Jesus Christ did it all through his offering of, his, of himself, through his shed blood, through his death on the cross, he became peace for us. He offered us peace. He gave it to us. So we have peace with God because of Christ's death. Christ came not just to provide us with a godly example. He did that. But also to die on our behalf and to be accursed, as Galatians 3 says. Cursed is him who hangs on the tree. He took that curse of sin upon himself. He took us, our place. He was our substitute. We transferred our sin upon him. 
And he paid for that sin. He atoned for it. He took the beating. He took the nails. He took the whipping. He took it all on the cross for us so that he could become sin for us on our behalf. God's holy character required that that sin be punished. You and I deserve death. We deserve the punishment for our sins. And yet, through Jesus Christ, that punishment is going to be appeased. It's going to be taken care of. God's wrath is going to be satisfied. The sin makes us the object of God's wrath until the penalty of sin is paid. I am, you, anyone listening, we should be paying for our sins, but we can't. As sinful people, we can't be that spotless lamb. We can't provide. We can't work hard enough. We can't do enough to atone for, to satisfy God's wrath. And so because of that, Jesus Christ is going to be the one who satisfies it, who substitutes himself in our place. So by laying down his own life, Jesus pays that price in full on our behalf, satisfying God's demands. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. He appeases the wrath of God. He satisfies God's wrath through his substitutionary death on the cross. It's important to note, this was not made to Satan. It might seem like a small thing, but he's not, he's not paying, making a payment to Satan. He is making a payment to God because it is God's wrath that is going to be poured out upon sin. And Jesus Christ takes our wrath that has deserved us, and by faith we trust in him, we lay our hands upon him and we trust in him to forgive us of our sins and to be satisfied, have our wrath satisfied by God because of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, you remember it? Do you remember that, Do you remember that passage there? I'm going to just read. Most of us know that first part where it talks about uh, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to come, to die in our place, that he might be righteousness in dealing with sin, while at the same time, he provides righteousness for us, the ones who believe in Jesus Christ. Have you accepted Christ's gift? The greatest gift God offers is Jesus Christ. Everything points forward in the Old Testament to Christ. He is the greatest gift. He atoned for our sins. And those who by faith believe in him, who identify with him, the Bible says that he takes our place, that he pays for our sins. Christ's death was more than just an attempt to reverse the human course started by Adam. It served as a substitute payment for the trespasses of all mankind. Christ becomes our replacement upon the cross. He takes our wrath. He takes our sin. He takes the judgment that is owed to us. And he bears all of the weight upon the cross. What a beautiful thing, a beautiful gift that God so offers to us. That whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is a gift we must accept. And I trust that if you're listening and you have not accepted the wonderful gift of Christ's death for payment for your sins, that you do that today. Or maybe you'll give us a call or send us an email. We'd love to be able to reach out and help you in your relationship, in your journey to Jesus Christ and understand what he has done for us. Now, the laying on of hands, what's really interesting about this passage is you have that picture of the Levites being the substitution of the firstborn. Beautiful picture forward, Christ taking our place, that we place our sins upon Christ. But look, look what happens 
It goes a little bit further in the passage. Israel is going to lay their hands on the Levites, but then the Levites are going to lay their hands upon the bulls. In verse number uh, 11, and Aaron shall offer, uh, no, verse 12, excuse me. And the Levites shall lay their hands upon the heads of the bullocks, and thou shalt offer one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering unto the Lord to do what? To make atonement for the Levites. They needed, although they were a special, unique group, they needed their sins covered and atoned for. So now you have this picture of the Levites. And unlike Christ, they did have sins that needed to be atoned for. And so they, in the representation of all of Israel, they lay their hands upon the the bulls, and then these bulls are going to be sacrificed. They're going to be slaughtered upon the altar on behalf of the Levites, on behalf of the nation, as a beautiful picture that their sins are covered. But think about something. Who's still standing there? It's the Levites. It's Israel's offering. They are still, they were, they were Israel's sacrifice. They transferred their sins to the bulls. The bulls are slaughtered. Their sin is atoned for. But now you have the Levites standing there as the sacrifice, the offering of Israel to God. And they are not dead, but they are alive. They are a living sacrifice. And as this living sacrifice, they are there. And because of the death of these bulls, their sin is atoned for. They are holy. They are now acceptable unto the Lord. So now you have this beautiful mind. Your your mind can't help but go to Romans chapter 12, can it? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is a reasonable service. As we serve the Lord, as we work in our lives, as we go about everything in our lives, we are to be, Paul says, presenting ourselves very similar to the Levites. Consecrated, dedicated to God. Living holy and acceptable. They were a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. We are to be too, Paul says. That we are to go about our life holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable form of worship. How do we exalt God? How do we bring him glory? How do we live for him day in and day out? We live holy and acceptable lives as unto the Lord. We are to be living sacrifices. The Levites were the sacrifice that Israel placed their hands on. They remained as that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. I think about the gifts of God in this passage. And next week, as we go even further in the passage and keep going through it, We're going to see these gifts that God gives to people. God gives to the nation. But what do these gifts look like? What do they look? God gives opportunities for the fallen like Aaron, like the Levites, to be faithful. Those who have sinned can be forgiven. We see that. God provided atonement for our sins. He provides it now through Jesus Christ to have our sins covered To have it forgiven, that is the greatest gift of all. And he provides cleansing. God gives cleansing to the sinners. As we look at Justice's first half of chapter 8, we see Aaron, fallen, faithful. We see the Levites, who though a righteous group, they still needed their sins cleansed. They still needed to be forgiven. And as we look at our lives, as we start to think day in and day out, the gifts that God gives to us, he gives us, as fallen believers, this, that's what our church is. We are not a group of perfect people. We are a group of fallen saints who are trying to strive to be faithful and holy to God, who want to pick each other up, who want to encourage each other to live for righteousness, to live for holiness, not to shame and to belittle when somebody falls, but to pick them up because we know and we understand that if someone like Aaron can become faithful, so can we. We can not wallow in our, our sin, but we can become through repentance and through the cleansing of forgiveness, we can go forward living for God because Christ suffered for all of our sins. Christ gives us the ability to have victory over sin. 
We can, through the forgiveness of sin, be cleansed from all unrighteousness. But we must accept the forgiveness and the cleansing that God offers to go forward in our life. For some, it's accepting that gift of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that God took our place. For some, you're living in sin. You know, I'm, you know you're saved. I know I'm saved, but I still struggle with sins X, Y, and Z. No one else may know about them, but God knows. And I need to experience. Maybe you've asked time and time again, and you just need to accept the fact that God has forgiven you. That he has cleansed you from unrighteousness. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us, to scrub us clean from all of our unrighteousness. This whole passage, this first part, points us toward the fact that in order to be used by God and to be serving God and to be faithful with God, we we hear his word, we obey it, but we must be right with him. We must be holy. And in order to have that holiness, it may require for some of us to get on our knees before God and to repent of our sins. Not for salvation, but maybe it's the sin of self-control, lack of it. Maybe it's the sin of anger. Maybe it's the sin of jealousy. Maybe it's the sin of rage. Maybe it's the sin of adultery. Maybe it's the sin of wanting a divorce. Maybe it's the sin of drunkenness, drugs, substance abuse. Maybe it's the sin of disrespecting mom and dad. But we need to be a holy people. And in order to be a holy people, we must accept the forgiveness and the cleansing of God. And when we do that, and we can move forward in life knowing and trusting in this verse, trusting that God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins to trust in the forgiveness and the cleansing of God, not to continually beat ourselves but to go forward, trusting in the faithfulness and the cleansing of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to trust in your forgiveness, whether it be for salvation or for the cleansing of our unrighteousness and our unholiness that we come before you at times in our lives and we live a grotesque life before you. God, forgive us Forgive me, Lord, of my sins. Lord, forgive me of the things that I do that are not glorifying to you. And God, I pray that you would help our church. Help us to be holy before you. Help us to repent of our sins so that we can be holy and acceptable unto you as we worship you and we serve you in our daily lives and we serve and worship you in our church in the weeks to come. We look forward to that. We look forward to the time together in the fellowship. But until that time, Lord, help us to give our lives to you as living sacrifices unto you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time.